Sometimes I even wince at some of the things that we made them do. Oof, locking them in the boot of the car, dragging them round the pitch in the snow. Hmm, you can't eat for two days. Somebody will stay there and make sure you don't eat. It sounds like tough love, yeah. but very tough love. Oh, very, very, very tough love. Well, yeah. <laughs> but it changed their character. And today, I know if Scalzi boy or Philo, my guy, if they saw us today, they'd shake your hand and say, Fash, thank you, mate. You might have beat the hell out of us for how many years, but it changed our character. And today, we can say we are international footballers. Would you like me to count down so you know when to start your intro? You know what I could use you? I could use you when I go to the bathroom. Like, I feel like it would go so much smoother if someone gave me a countdown. All right, countdown to pooping. Give me one of those. 13, 12, 11, well, don't poop now. 6, 5, 4, 3, gross, 2, 1. Now the story of an eclectic fan base who lost touch with reality and the one podcast that somehow holds them all together. It's the Substandard Expanded Universe. Welcome to the 85th episode of the SSEU podcast. The SSEU is a podcast about pop culture that isn't afraid to address the hard-hitting questions. Did Jar Jar and Natalie Portman do it? How many Ewoks can you fit in a Beetle? If a Wes Anderson movie flops, does anyone care? The podcast started as a tribute podcast to the Sub Beacon podcast, and it's host, hosted by myself, Thomas, together with Ryan the Banana Slug Kinney and Chris the Gadfly Haberman. Unlike many other shows, we have our finger on the pulse of real America. You can find us on Twitter in the mega thread. If you have questions or concerns, please tweet those at JVLast on Twitter. He will then text them to his best friend, Ryan Kinney. Ryan will text them to me and Chris, and Chris and I will ignore them. I thought Ryan was going to print them out and mail them to us. That would be inefficient, Chris. I also want to point out that we have a relatively new Patreon page where you can support the podcast to help us cover some of the costs associated with making the show. As a thank you for your support, we release extra bonus material on the Patreon page, like the commentary... <laughs> extra like, bonus. Extra bonus. Like the commentary track for Solo, a Star Wars story that Chris and Ryan recorded about four months ago. Extra and bonus. On today's show, we will turn an eye to the British Isles and ask why they talk funny. I have also convinced Chris and Ryan to watch a documentary about the crazy gang and we'll talk about why they, why they truly live up to their name. But first, lads, how are you? Chris? I'm doing great. I didn't realize it was podcast or episode number 85. I'm a big fan of the tight end position in, and that's not an innuendo. Um, I'm a big fan of the position for, for football teams. Like, my team, the Minnesota Vikings, have many memorable tight ends. And Jermaine Wiggins is one of my favorites. And uh, he was number 85. So that's pretty cool. Thomas, it is freaking hot in Sioux Falls. It is. We, Chris, we talked about this. Do you realize how old you sound when, so hot. when your favorite topic is the weather? It's not my favorite topic. I wish I didn't have to talk about the weather, but it's hot. And I how hate hot? it. And how hot I need did you to say move- this? Uh, Hot one. 
it's been in the 90s every day and it's humid and it's terrible and all i do is stay inside uh not even upstairs downstairs upstairs is too hot because it's like 71 upstairs and it's it's like 68 downstairs so i survived down here this is where i live now Rather you than me. We are recording on July 3rd. Tomorrow is a um, wonderful holiday in America um, when we celebrate the 4th of July, in which we celebrate uh, July 4th. And uh, we went shopping today, me and Isaac. Jordan went to, uh, Meg was working, and, and uh, Jordan went to a water park with, her fr- with a friend of hers. Slipping and sliding around in the COVID. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm sure it's fine. And so I I went to the COVID fireworks store. I never buy fireworks because it is, I'm frugal and fireworks are the next closest thing to setting your money on fire. How how much did you spend? $70. $70. What what do you get for, I have no idea what it costs. So like, what do you get for that? Uh, Not a lot. I bought fireworks before. (laughs) Not a lot, Thomas. I, I bought $7 worth, brought it home, and uh, we were like, okay, kind of like, uh, I don't know if it's that my wife is a softie or if it's her, her tradition on Christmas to open a gift on Christmas Eve, but we did that thing. Like, we're like, okay, let's light a few You sparkles. set off some fireworks on July 3rd. You we're like, let's- a monster. You're a monster. <laughs> We're like, or she's like, let's do a few sparklers. And we ended up doing like three quarters of the fireworks. And let me just say that like $50 worth of fireworks doesn't look like a whole lot. <laughs> well, are we talking like, are these like rockets that you like, did you shoot them up into the yeah, sky? Yeah, they're or? rockets. No, they're like sparklers and they're like these little bullshit things that go. <laughs> they, then... they, take, they take like 10 seconds. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that was $12 well spent. <laughs> yeah so the coolest thing was like a 12 dollar thing uh called it like a jelly bean and it lasted like 25 seconds and it was cool and loud and colorful but that was the coolest thing there were okay. some pretty disappointing ten dollar things each well i mean each jelly bean was maybe a buck you know sure, about 70 jelly beans <laughs> but isn't uh, isn't the important question here did the kids like it oh they loved it Money yeah. well spent. Yeah, yeah, but it was seventy dollars, <laughs> and we burned enough that we're we're gonna have to go back tomorrow and buy more. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I was gonna ask. One of the fascinating things about the U.S. to me was when you cross certain state lines. So like yeah. when you when you cross from Ohio into Indiana, suddenly you're greeted by a massive fireworks store right there on the border Huge. because you can't buy them in Ohio. Yeah, right. they're illegal. In yeah. Indiana, they're everywhere. <laughs> Especially on the state borders. Yeah. yeah. Like, they're not legal within Austin city limits, but you can buy them. Like there is a there is a a shed like five like not even five minutes from me in this uh so it used to be like a um it used to be this like this uh huge store that sold like flowers and stuff for your yard, but then they went out of business. So now there's just this shed that is just sitting in the middle of it. And most of the year that shed is empty, but then around the end of May, (laughs) they they put up like like, a sign. uh, Yeah. That says fireworks. (laughs) 
And then they, so just like right down the street from me, they sell fireworks out of that thing until the July 4th. And, and so I had a friend that like worked at one of these. So these little things, these little sheds are all over Austin. And like, basically um, I had a friend that worked at one of them and he was like saying, Hey, if you want extra money, you can work at this fireworks stand with me. And I was like, that doesn't sound like fun. And he was like, oh, yeah, I don't know. This was like five years ago. And he was like, um, so you get like $1,000 a day, but you have to spend the night there. Like you basically have to stay there for 24 hours because you can't leave because people will steal from the shed. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, 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 I have so many questions. The, 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 the first is all of this just it doesn't sound legal like it sounds illegal like you can't you're not supposed to shoot them off in austin like you can sell them apparently you can sell them in austin like in travis county but you can't shoot them off in city limits yeah but but you do like there's already people like chris firing off (laughs) no 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 but but i mean i mean the people the vendors selling these things they can't be legal like i am sure that they probably pay like zero tax on anything and maybe they stole the fireworks from somewhere i don't know all right right, second second question did you say early may the end of may (laughs) End like, of May. They, at the end of May, like you start seeing the sign, like because for most of the year the shed is just blank. There's nothing on it, and then at the end of the May you see like they put up the sign, like they have a banner that's printed, and they put it across the top, and it says fireworks, and then like you start seeing more and more signs for fireworks. So are, like are yeah, people- they they sell them in June. They start selling them in June. Are people lighting lighting up the fireworks in june oh yeah 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 i'd say within 10 days not like fourth of july not like uh every night in june but yeah within two weeks of the fourth of july they're firing them off apparently people call the police because the police will show up but by the time because like people don't shoot them off in their own neighborhood they just like go to a different neighborhood and what no you shoot off your driveway they go in the middle of a cul-de-sac and they launch them off. And then by the time the police get there, it's like, yeah, they're gone. What a lovely American tradition. It's, it's yeah, white collar crime. Uh, People uh, should do what, like the new tradition. Thanks. Thanks to Bob Iger and Lynn Manuel Miranda and Disney. And, and they should just watch the, uh, the, the Hamilton experience are there there fireworks are there fireworks on hamilton there there are some cannons because of the revolutionary war but are there fireworks celebrating the revolutionary war sure i don't really accept any holiday that like the only holidays that count are the ones where you eat herring so do you eat herring on the fourth of july no okay so it's not a real holiday there aren't any holidays where you eat herring christmas and midsummer that's you not a herring. thing. We don't, we don't eat herring is. on Christmas. Thomas, do you know the That's etymology? Do you know the etymology of holiday? Transition. It's holy day. You, you, you've been on about this before. We all know. Well, no, no, no transition. Fireworks are, are great. We're going to go buy more, and we're going to set them off tomorrow on the 4th of July. I don't care for fireworks. Actually, we never buy them. We like to watch the community ones, but they're canceled in the community. However... Um, our president is in my state Cancel today culture. at Mount Rushmore with our governor. 
Your governor uh, was on Glenn Beck the other day. Aren't you proud? Was she? Yeah. I'm not proud. I'm not proud. I I hope she sold a generator uh, to him. <laughs> anyway, our governor is great. She's amazing and beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she's she probably only like dabbles in QAnon conspiracies. <laughs> yeah, she's at Mount Rushmore with her president. And I guess there's a fireworks display and they've gathered thousands of people with no masks or to social distancing. And so like nobody cares uh, whether you're protesting or whether you're gathering for a rally. I wonder how many people are going to get COVID after this. I mean, it's only, it was only so far. It's only been from Tulsa. It's only been like seven people, including Ben. Ryan, you have not been paying attention that, that Fox news chick, Kim Guilfoyle. She got it. The, uh, is that Donald Trump jr's, uh, girlfriend? I think it's Eric. No, it's Donnie jr's girlfriend. Yep. She she has it. She has the, she has the Corona. Ben Ben Carson does too. <laughs> like he won't say officially that's where he got it from. But how old is Ben Carson? He's he's way too old to be getting the coronavirus from Tulsi Gabbard. He's got to be in his sixties. Oh my gosh. Speaking of holidays, so we had midsummer and we had family visiting, and I talked last week about how I tried to introduce them to decent cinema. We had a few more nights of them here, and and. I would, none of them listen to this, but I was, I, I love them dearly. They're, they're fun to be around. It is amazing when they leave. The, the quiet that set in here the other day where they all just left and I could just sit at the kitchen table and do work was amazing. But anyway, so I showed them more movies. I showed them Sicario. Did my sister like that? No. I showed them <laughs> Arrival. Did my sister like Arrival? No. Uh, then I showed them Game Night. Did she like Game Night? She did. All right. Hey, that's that's, that's good. a good movie. You can't go wrong with Jason Bateman and what's her name? That's that's like the only movie I like her in, so yeah. What? You didn't she's in she's in Eurovision. I don't know what that is. We're we're gonna we're gonna watch it. Don't worry, Chris. You will you will know soon. I wanted to say about Game Night, I think there were there are two things about Game Night that I like, and the rest is trash. Uh, I like the scene in the end on the bridge. I think that one's good. And I actually think it's funny when the dog gets blood all over his office or bedroom or whatever it is. That's all you liked? Yeah, of up. course, those are good things to like, but there's the whole so much funny. more. Yeah, there, There's nothing else to like about oh that. You are an idiot. I can't believe this. I quit Wait, the podcast. Why am I still doing this show? But anyway, so after they left, so what I have been doing this week is that I brought out the, the brush cutter and I have been out in the forest cutting down trees and cutting, the, cutting the away brush. The cutter? You've been, brush. You've been landscaping? cutting bush? So you people don't know anything about the forest, but you need to clear away the underbrush and the, the weak trees. We're you got to get into that undercarriage. You got to get that undercarriage clean. <laughs> then we're going to be able to, to plant trees. And no one needs a gym because you spend three, four hours in the forest. And, and it feels great. And it's less itchy. <laughs> and that's why you feel great. Transition. As uh, Sonny and Alyssa... And Peter would say there was a controversy the other day about Christopher Nolan. Did you guys see this? Yes, we did. Because you pointed it out to me. Well, I didn't know about it until I saw on Instagram that he that his team, Christopher Nolan's team, debunked it. So apparently, Anne Hathaway said that there are no chairs allowed on the sets of Christopher Nolan movies because if you're sitting, then you're, you're not, not working. working. 
And so his team released a statement that said that that's not true. You can have chairs on set. Uh, Chris, I call him Chris. Chris doesn't use them because, um, no, they didn't say why he doesn't use them. They just said he chooses not to use a chair on set, but anybody can have a chair if they want one. No, wasn't it that there aren't aren't like uh, like hierarchical chairs that are usually set up? I read the Instagram post. The Instagram post just said, uh, "Yeah, there, there's something about how the chairs around the video aren't there, like the director's chair, whatever." And and, and it's they represent yeah, he, like power structures. Well, I didn't, that, they didn't post that on Instagram. There was an IndieWire story in the link to the Instagram post that I didn't read. I just Okay, read. well, you should read, Ryan. Um, so my point is that, uh, I mean, so here's the thing. Anne Hathaway and I were born on the same day. Not the same day in a different year, but the same day. Didn't you guys poop in the same place or something like that? On numerous occasions. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of common threads between me and Anne Hathaway, but uh, so I'm inclined to like her. Um, she's a great actress. But my question to you guys is, is she a complete idiot? Because how do you how how, how do you go from um, something that every actor and every person on the set acknowledges as, oh, well, there's just, like, one part of the set that's different where there's no, like, hierarchy as far as director's chair and, like, I sit higher than you or whatever the case may be and and go from that to saying there are no chairs on set. Like, how did she work on two films, not one, but two films with him and, and like, not sit down for the whole time? And she's not even, she's not, like, side characters. She's, like... One of the stars. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, so she's there a lot. So did she either stand the whole time because she's a moron? Or did she hide under a blanket and think that she was invisible while her, sta- you know, assistant put a chair, like, got her a contraband chair and um, let her hide pretending she's invisible, thinking that the, that she was doing something illicit? The only thing that Chris bans on sets are cell phones and smoking. Not a fan of either of those on set. I don't know about the smoking part, but I did know that he banned cell phones. Interesting. He doesn't ban meth on set. How would Christian Bale survive? (laughs) It is not explicitly banned. Interestingly, uh, Whit Stillman, a favorite of this podcast, uh, he bans cursing on his sets. Greta Gerwig, Ryan's favorite director, remarked uh, about how difficult... Um, that made her presence on, on the set. fuck can you ban cursing on set? Well, clearly we can't. One of the things that I realized during the Christopher Nolan controversy is that there appear to be a lot of people out there, and especially on Twitter, that don't like him. Uh, seem to have yeah. almost irrational hatred of him. Well, and, and, and as we talked about, I think it goes back to during the narc dark night the the narc diet trilogy <laughs> the dark night trilogy where there were a lot of uh, a lot of articles written suggesting that Christopher Nolan's was you know uh, paying uh, like a love letter or a tribute to George W Bush's neoconservatism and 
because he didn't come out and dramatically denounce those, he just got painted as like a crazy conservative. And so kind of seems like from then on. But he's not even a Tory, is he? Wait, hey, hang on. Um, I don't think he's even... I also don't think that Taylor Swift uh, weighed in uh, on the dark uh, night. That, that is a very good point. Because he's not like outspoken about his wokeness, even though he's kind of woke, but because he doesn't make a big deal about it, he, he just gets labeled as kind of a conservative or conservative-friendly. SJWs kind of hate him. It seems like there are a lot of people who might think that Nolan is pretentious and obsessed with, you know, like formats and how movies should be shot and CGI and stuff like that. But there's nothing wrong with that. No, I know. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, Friend of the podcast, uh, Steven, on uh, SFlip on Twitter. uh, So he's a film major and his professors hated uh, Christopher Nolan, which is insane to say that like an artistic director. So, I mean, this isn't some, some dumb, like uh, lowest common denominator director, but this is, this is like the most, he's uh, not from South Dakota. Clearly not. But this are artistic and popular, you know, financially successful director. Like, this is the guy you should be pushing, the guy who's telling original stories, who's getting big-budget movies produced. This should be your hero. Yeah, even, if, you, even if you don't, like, say, well, I, I, like, this is the movie I would make, we should be asking for more of these types of movies. The other day in the Megathread, friend and former guest on the show, never to be a guest again, Tim Lewis... Uh, expressed his hatred for Christopher Nolan. I I, I get it. What? I get it. I get it. Well, he uh, said the only great, like satisfying uh, movie was Dunkirk. The rest were disappointing. <laughs> I, I I get that Interstellar was no Christmas Town, but I mean, come on. On the most recent episode of Sub Beacon, they talked about the British movie Layer Cake, which is one of JVL's, I believe, favorite movies ever. They the top about- five of the 2000s. I thought he said it was the best of the 2000s. Was Didn't he say it? I think he uh, just I, said it was top five of the 2000s. I don't think he gave an actual ranking of his well, top he, five. he even said he can't choose between his favorite children. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, all right, uh, all right. But- Vic and Sonny made a point that if someone watches Layer Cake for the first time, they should use the subtitles because they don't understand what's going on. So maybe if they were buddies with Christopher Nolan, he could translate for for them. Because of this, I figured that we should actually have a quiz on British sayings, (laughs) on Britishisms, British words. I know some British sayings. (laughs) As Uh, you remember from the Dunkirk quote. (laughs) I I have prepared a a number of questions here, and I figured that I I would ask you guys, and you, do you want to buzz in with your name, or? I want to buzz in with your name. I'll buzz buzz in with some British things. Okay. Are you guys ready? Uh Uh-huh. Question one. What is a Mackin? (laughs) Uh, Tommy. Go ahead, Chris. A macadamia nut. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Close, but incorrect. Thomas. Yes, Ryan. A John. <laughs> that, that is also incorrect. All Mac- British sayings are either a whore or a John. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 Mackem is a resident or someone from Sunderland. Uh, and I, I, love how, 
I love how the Brits have this. So like there are a bunch of these wonderful nicknames for people from different parts of England. Why the hell so, do we care about this? So a Geordie is someone from Newcastle. Geordie LaForge from the next generation Star Trek. Uh, a Brammy is someone from Birmingham. Cockney London, a Scouser is someone from Liverpool, a Sheep Shagger is someone from Wales, and so on. It's like They have all these lovely nicknames, and I just love it. My th- third grade daughter discovered Google on her Chromebook at school this year, and um, they decided to Google each other's names, which provided interesting results. And I'm grateful that when she Googled her friend John, that she only discovered that John means toilet. Let me just – I'm just grateful that that was the only result that amused them. Question two. What emotion are you expressing when you use the word blimey? Doss house. Uh, yes? Um, frustration. No. Incorrect. Chris? Um, let me think. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll be here a while. It's fucking frustration. What? No, it's not. Um, uh, dyspepsia. Yeah, dyspepsia. That's what it is. You are expressing surprise at something. Like, blimey, look at that. Question three. What does the British term brass monkeys refer to? Bum freezer. Go on, Ryan. Uh, Big balls. Close, but no. Can you repeat the question for me? What does the British term brass monkeys refer to? Um, Brass monkeys, of course, refers to copper Ryan's. Brass monkeys refers to extremely cold weather. The phrase comes from the expression, it is cold enough to freeze the balls of a brass monkey. I should get a half a point. What's that from? Question four. What is a do? D-O. What are you doing if you're having a do? Joshua. Ryan. Uh, I thought I had something. Um, (laughs) It's not a poop. Hold hold on. Let me me Google this. Um, (laughs) Is that because Steve Bing died? You're having a do. You're having a do. I'm going to start to use that. When I'm trying to think of something, I'm going to say that I'm Googling it. Is it like a row? Um, We're waiting for Ryan here, Chris. Slow down. All right. Uh, Hold on. Is it... uh, Is he Googling it now? Is it like a gobshite? (laughs) (laughs) No. Chris, Is is it a French letter? Like a condom? A French letter is a condom. No, 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 no. Is, is it a fight? Why wasn't French letter on your quiz? Is it a fight? No, it's not a fight. A do is a party. Any sort of party can be a do. Question I, I, five. I've got a don't, whole list of terms here that Thomas didn't use. Don't be, Question, don't be so dyspeptic. Question five. What are you if you are peckish? Hungry. Thomas, hungry. Bum, bum hungry. <laughs> Chris gets the point. Yes. I didn't get to buzz in with bum freezer. A bum freezer is a short jacket that doesn't cover your butt. (laughs) That makes sense. You should not wear a bum freezer when it's brass monkeys. Question six. What does hunky-dory mean? Uh, Thomas. Collie wobbles. Chris. Hunky-dory means you're doing well. Yeah, you're doing okay. It's cool or whatever. Yeah, you're okay. Yeah, you're hunky-dory. Two two points to Chris, and Ryan has half a point. This is bullshit. What did he get half a point for? Uh, he used the word balls. Question seven, which is the last question, and it is worth two points. If someone asks you for a chin wag, 
What are they asking you to do? Thomas. Jerry. Chris. Uh, Nigerhead. Uh, incorrect. Ryan, this is like, this is for the game. This is for the glory. Punch them in the face. Uh, I mean, it's close. It is to have a friendly conversation. That's how I... And I'll, say, every friendly I'll take the two points. I'll take the two points. <laughs> no, you right, won't. So- I won. Okay, but I've got all these. Richard the Third means poop. Jerry means cham- <laughs> means chamber pop. Uh, Josser means simpleton. Doss House means cheap whorehouse. Blog Trotter means Irishman. So I-, I should get some points for some of those. Blog Trotter is Irishman. Bog okay. Trotter. Oh, blog Trotter. Blog Trotter. Okay. Bog Trotter. I swear you said blog. Tr- Maybe I did. I've been checking. I agree with Ryan. We'll we'll award Ryan one point for that. So Chris wins with two points, and Ryan gets a point and a half. Still, the Seinfeld quiz is the only quiz you guys haven't cheated in. Let's stay in Britain, because for this week, I managed to convince my fellow co-hosts to watch a documentary called The Crazy Gang. What is The Crazy Gang about? Tennis. I love tennis. I love Wimbledon. So The Crazy Gang is a documentary about Wimbledon Football Club from London. And about- basically the money ball. Uh, they, were the, they were the money ball of, uh, of soccer. The Oakland A's, um, the early 2000s Oakland A's. Except for they figured out that uh, the, it's the, true, op- it's true. the, they the played opportunity it. area, the opportunity area was violence is what, <laughs> is what they discovered. And they played in the worst stadium. Like, yeah. One that had uh, so so the the Oakland A's were famous for having like raw sewage flowing into, uh, of course that was also the home locker room, but uh, that, that was <laughs> yeah, that was, theirs wasn't any better. It was famous for the Wimbledon Football Club to to have. Um, of course, they don't call them locker rooms; they call them. Of course, all all British accents sound very effeminate, so um, they call them dressing rooms. So um, their dressing rooms had like tons of. I thought they called them gangbangers. It's uh, called a sausage in the mouth. <laughs> okay, so so let me uh, give some background and set the mood here on things that aren't uh, necessarily in the documentary. Wimbledon Football Club was in the mid nineteen. 19- 1970s, a non-league club, meaning that they weren't in the top four divisions where you could get promoted and relegated and then go on and actually like win the championship in the end. Those four divisions were closed and Wimbledon was an amateur club playing, you know, playing a game on Saturday, then going to the pub both before and after the game. They weren't taking the sport really all that seriously. In the late 1970s, after they managed to win the Southern League in three consecutive years, they were voted into the league system and they got to play in Division 4. And I believe that they joined in 1978. What's amazing about Wimbledon, so there's a lot to like about Wimbledon. And one of the things is that it took them 10 years from Division 4 to the top division and to go and win the FA Cup, which at the time was as prestigious as winning the league. It is a a true Cinderella story that no other team has replicated, not in England and probably not anywhere else. And so- what is the FA Cup? So the, the FA Cup is a cup for teams in England where all of the smaller clubs also get to participate as well as the big clubs. You can have a team from Division 4 play against Liverpool or Man United or whatever, and it is a season-long cup. 
and you crown a winner in the end. So uh, this is a playoff is it system. Always head head? played at Wembley Stadium, or was is that so, someone's home stadium? No. So Wembley Stadium at the time was the national stadium uh, for England, and so the national team would play there. The FA Cup final would be there. The playoffs to get promoted between divisions would take place there. Liverpool at the time had had such great success in the FA Cup that. Uh, a lot of people started to refer to Wembley as Anfield South. And why didn't they ever play on the tennis court at Wimbledon? As we were waiting for Ryan to join us last week, as we do every week, you shared, as we were talking about Liverpool's recent, whatever cup they won. The league, uh, the Premier League. Okay, the Premier League. I was like, well, wait a second. This, This is like they won the most points in the regular season. Why aren't there playoffs? And you're like, well, that's playoffs are barbaric. And yet the FA Cup seems like a playoff system. It's a head-to-head thing. So that you have to play head-to-head. I actually agree. The regular season should matter way more than the playoffs. Because so, it's much, so whoever it's much, wins it's much harder to win uh, the most points throughout a season than it is to win a playoff. So you shouldn't have to win head-to-head versus the be- next best team? I don't know. That should matter. But there should also be taken into consideration the entire season like they, you shouldn't throw out the entire season when you get to just a playoff thing that's ridiculous because like with baseball if you're the best team over 162 games like whatever happens in the playoffs should matter but it shouldn't matter more than the entire season there so, should be a weighted playoff system like you should only have to like be in the world series or something okay ryan let me ask you this then so in this documentary they said that this was one of the greatest cup shocks of all time sure so um how do you get great cup shocks well you don't because this team wasn't this is like this is like an ncaa tournament like when george mason like went for a deep run a few years ago in the ncaa tournament how far did they go they went to like the final four or something like that we don't have the ncaa tournament anymore in covid days so this was (laughs) a long time ago and they, don't, and they don't wear nut cups in college basketball. So well, you can't get any nut cups, great or small. So the, the thing about Wimbledon at the time is that the story is really amazing and fascinating. Like the journey that they take within 10 years from Division 4 to become uh, one of the top teams in the first division and to go and win the FA Cup. It's, the entire 10-year span is amazing because no other team has done it that fast. It isn't as big of a shock that in 1989 they can reach the final because they are one of the best, 10 best teams in the country. But to win it is a whole other thing. I, I get it. Th- this movie was called The Crazy Gang. Ryan, what did you think of The Crazy Gang? I had no idea that Vinnie Jones was a soccer player before he was an actor. Yeah. If I knew that, I had forgotten that. that. Yeah. A, a little biography on Win, uh, Vinnie Jones before he joins Wimbledon. In the early to mid 1980s, Vinnie Jones is a teenager. He is trying to break into a football team. He's trying to actually make a living as a footballer. He quits. He essentially stops playing football around the age when he's 20. Because to act in he, Guy Ritchie movies. <laughs> because he, he can't make it. He instead goes down and works He's as the a Bill and Beer of. <laughs> he he starts to work as a construction worker down at the dock, and that's he's what the he ha- does. He's the Han Solo. That's what he does. the The current manager of Wimbledon, Dave Bassett, 
For some reason, he likes Vinnie Jones and thinks that he can actually become something. He sends him one year. He has some connections in Sweden. Dave Bassett was, for some reason, obsessed with Sweden. And he finds a club in Sweden that's willing to take on Vinnie Jones for their seasonal contract. So for one year, they're going to take on Vinnie Jones. Vinnie Jones flies to Sweden, ends up in the Swedish third division for a team in the middle of nowhere, northern Sweden. There is nothing around the team. Uh, they might have 50 people at their games or something yeah. like that. They are aiming to get promoted to the second division. And in Vinnie Jones's uh, biographies, he's written several. He writes about his time in Sweden as one <laughs> Wait, of his... Wait, what? Wait, time out. How many autobiographies has Vinnie Jones written? Uh, it's, a, it's at least two. autobiographies. <laughs> well, I know, I know President like, Obama I has two. I was lying about that one. Let me, let me give it another go. Yeah. Well, and so, so he talks about his time in Sweden as being amazing and whatever, and he gives up alcohol for a year and things like this. Uh, he actually plays relatively well. They bring, bring him back to England. Dave Bassett puts him in the Wimbledon team. So this is a guy who worked as a construction worker, played in the Swedish third division, and suddenly he's going to play for one of the best teams in England. Whatever Dave Bassett was smoking, I want that. I think that that was the genius in the recruitment. Um, I think that um, a lot of the lads had had troubles, um, been kicked out of clubs or not wanted, not because of lack of football ability, but because of lack of guidance and support. And I think that support system was in place. We were all young men who had a lot of anger. I remember when Jonesy, the madman, came into the, the team. He would come in there and beat the hell out of three people and uh, cause hell, smash cups and everything. We were going, wow. So I thought I was angry. There's one white guy who's got more challenges than I have. I thought I got some chips on my shoulder, but this guy's got more. Wow, I like this guy. Wait, one of the best teams in England being Wimbledon? Uh, at the time, after they had gotten promoted to the Premiership, they had finished like third, fifth, something like that. Like because the whole premise, the better teams in because the, the whole the premise league. of this of this documentary is that they were un huge underdogs. They were, and like they, they're not as big of a team as say Liverpool or Arsenal or whatever. They were underdogs, and they were not supposed to beat Liverpool in the final. But it has become a little bit exaggerated. Because, uh, I mean, at the beginning of the movie, they talked about how they would, like, how, how little money they had, how they would borrow cones from the highway. Like, the, yeah. they didn't have cones for practice. <laughs> so they would go to the, to the um, A3 and grab cones off of the highway and bring them onto the practice field and then put them back when they're done. Yeah, no, I mean, they were still poor. They, they, they were probably, if not the poorest, one of the poorest teams in the Which is crazy because they're in London. Like, why is a London team poor? Like, okay, I, I get there are, like, poor areas of London, but it's, it's crazy to me that a London team would be poor. They, they never had any fans. Uh, they existed in London in a poor area of Wimbledon, which, like, Wimbledon is known for the tennis, and it, many parts of Wimbledon are fairly affluent, but the so parts so, where Plowlaness was really you're, poor. You're saying some of the tennis courts in, in, in Wimbledon aren't grass. 
Part of the story about Wimbledon that's really fascinating is that Dave Bassett, who I mentioned, was obsessed with Sweden. He was the manager of the team until up until the year before they won the FA Cup. And he decided then that I've taken this team as far as I can. I've been their coach for 10 years. It is not possible to get farther. And then he went to Sheffield United and got to battle relegation instead. But Dave Bassett is a fascinating character for two main reasons. One is that during their climb up through the divisions, Wimbledon was dirt poor. They didn't have any money. You know what he did? He mortgaged his house for £150,000 and then he went out and bought players. And he sold his name to a, a hound breeder, so they would call it Bassett Hound. They would name that after him, which is, I mean, a weird way to make money, but hey. But, but true, true story. He, he also implemented a football philosophy, which they talk about in the documentary. Football was supposed to be simple. It was about getting the ball far up the pitch, pitch, get it in a scoring position, and then you just try to fire it at the goal, and then you go and back home and try to protect the net. You try to defend. And you add to that a heavy dose of physical play. <laughs> One might say, yes. Uh, w- one of the innovations that the Wimbledon team did was that they actually decided they would try to score, um, that they would <laughs> yeah. do the direct like... long ball style. Hey, let's do something that no one else is doing and kick the ball towards the goal. Let's kick it at the goal. Let's kick it at the goalie. <laughs> yeah. Let's um, just make him try to stop it. Instead they, of just like not trying to kick it at the goalie, let's kick it at the goalie. It's they just... totally moneyballed the whole league. They did. When they, like, they, they let's, did. Let's try to score. Let's do. Let's do violence and <laughs> kicking it at the goal, and see how that does. You guys are joking, but you're not too far away from the truth. In that their, their style of play was revolutionizing. Joking. People, Brits like Roy Hodgson or Bob Houghton, they left Britain and went primarily to Scandinavia, where this style of football also became really like Swedish and Norwegian football are heavily influenced by English football. And they talk about getting the ball far up the pitch. And then you just try to score, and then you try to defend. You get back in your positions. You don't give the ball away. If you give the ball away, you're off. You're out of the team. So you're not going to play anymore. I didn't know it, but like this was. So I played soccer my junior and senior year of high school because um, I never played soccer because you're a communist in my life, and you dabbled. The summer before my junior year, the soccer coach came to me, and and our our goalie had graduated. And um, he'd seen me play baseball and he said, I think you could be a great goalie. And I was like, all right. He's like, so will you come and play? And I didn't really know the coach that well, but he was an interesting guy. His philosophy was kind of based on this idea. He's like, what if we scored more goals than them? (laughs) It was, it was essentially like have a few like really good defenders and a really good goalie. And then everyone else try to just score. And he basically, and I said, I don't know anything about playing soccer. I don't know anything about playing goalie. And he said, I've seen you play shortstop. You can play goalie. And I said, okay. And uh, so we uh, like on the, on his system, my junior year, um, we were a very small team in like where it was a Christian college or Christian high school. 
with like a low number of students and we went to the state tournament and got to like the final four basically of the state tournament and like uh it was a like it was a, it was a similar th- like we played like really rough and <laughs> like we we put a lot of focus on like just like uh, putting pressure on the other team's defense what year was and, this uh 1997 if anyone is interested in in this kind of football tie, the, the guy is named charles hughes and he came up with this idea of positions of maximum opportunity or pomo p-o-m-o and the idea was you you get the ball there you try to score and you have a stable stable defense i'm almost positive we watched because we watched game tapes of teams from like the eighties and early nineties, he would just like make us, he'd make us come to his house and just make us watch all of these tapes of all this like English soccer. And I'm almost certain that we watched some of the games from this team. Ryan, question. Surprise me. Question. How, how many assists did you have as a goalie? I didn't have a lot of assists as a, I scored a goal. He let not, me go. Not a lot, but 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 what I'm saying is like how how many balls did you kick down the pitch and have someone else Well, I could goal? Throw, I could throw it really, I could throw it farther than I could punt it as a goalie. Okay. And so I could throw it to the other end of the uh, like I could throw it almost to the other goalie box. So there is a lot to like about Wimbledon. The fact that they made this 10-year journey that they stayed within their means. They had great success with few players, with very little talent. All of that is admirable, and that is why the team has a cult status. But then there is another side to Wimbledon that I feel like we should talk about that's not as pretty, right? Yeah, yeah. Before I get there, though, uh, Thomas, um, there's a term in English for that, and that's underdog. We like underdogs teams that don't have the money and don't have the talent but are able to play up but yes you're right there is another side it's not just that they were a lovable underdog that weren't as good that played in a smaller stadium with fewer fans they were also incredibly dirty they they were very blue collar in all the ways and so there's this quote that i wrote down and i may not have gotten it right because i you know scratched it down um all the lorry blokes were coming down to the players' lounge, is what I wrote down. So lorry blokes would be truck truckers. Mm-hmm. The truckers were coming down and hanging out with the players. So mm-hmm. like these players, they're like BFFs are truckers. Like these are legit blue collar guys, card carrying blue collar guys. So this is a culture that that not only the players had but they cultivated. So they would initiate their players. And so, um, so for yeah, I, initiation, I, I, they would strap a guy to the roof of the car and drive around with him. Yeah, no, or, not, not just drive around. They would strap the guy to the roof of the car and then barrel down the A3, which, yes. is, which is a motorway in London. Uh, they, they would put dog poop down each other's collars. And they, shoes. Yeah, and shoes. Like, I mean, you know, there's no reliability when you would go to the, uh, again, we, they call them dressing rooms that your stuff would be clean. Like there'd be dog poop or human pee in your stuff. And uh, they weren't paid well. And uh, so, so one anecdote from the, from this documentary was that a guy uh, was kind of short on money. And so they set his car on fire um, because he didn't get a raise. And so they, so he collected insurance money from them setting his car on fire. 
Yeah. There were also some dark sections where the one dude who was the kickboxer. Yeah. Yeah. So beat so, the shit yeah. out of. Yeah. Let, let's talk. Are, are, are you talking about Fash? Yeah. Let's yeah, talk fash. about John Fashino. Did it go too far at times? Adam, what is too far? There was no such thing as too far, Adam. Do I mean that somebody died? Nobody died. That's too far. Do I mean that somebody got his pride broken? Yes, maybe. So what? It's part of the game, Adam. Come on, it's part of the game, my man. He, so the, the core of the so-called crazy gang that won the FA Cup was Vinnie Jones and John Fashionow. And in John Fashionow's own words, they were warlords. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so initiation might be. So when, when another big guy, and so they didn't mention his name in the documentary, but I mm. heard it somewhere. I think he was a new signing from Blackburn or something like that. He joined the club and he was like big and could like potentially uh, intimidate Vinnie, Vinnie Jones and John Fashionow. They locked him in the dressing room and then John Fashionow just beat the shit out of it. Yeah, they talked about 20 stitches that he they had yeah. to get after he slammed him down like on their wooden bench. And this is his teammate. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, all right, you're part of the team now. We'll yeah. see you in six to eight weeks when that heals. And yeah. there's this other guy they spent a lot of time on, and I didn't. I think there was some subtext that I didn't get. John Scales. Um, so that was kind of a controversial acquisition and um so fash described how he grabbed him by the nostrils and, and dragged him into the manager's yeah. office yeah. yeah yeah uh john john scales was one of the more expensive signings that wimbledon made and he was a huge talent he went on to be an international player at the international level uh for liverpool among others and they treated him horribly and I am not sure why in the documentary he was like, like you could tell that he was trying to not be too harsh on them in a way. And was <laughs> he, like, he was afraid that Fash was going to come grab him by the <laughs> nose. Yeah, he was like, yeah. he was like, he's still in pretty good shape. I've yeah. seen him. <laughs> yeah, but this is what, not just with John Scales, but with other players like Terry Phelan too, who also became an international player. And as John Fashionow said, they would break them down and build them up. Yeah, uh, uh, when people talk about like bad locker room culture, like th- <laughs> this is it. This yeah. Is- yeah, yeah. So Fash was he the guy who was like? Uh, sometimes I wrote down this quote. Sometimes I wince at the things we made them do, driving them around to the boot of the car, so tr- in the trunk, um, dragging them around the pitch in the snow, not letting them eat for two days. I mean, we would have someone there watching them so they wouldn't mm-hmm. eat for two days. I um, remember this, but was it Fash? Because he didn't seem like he felt bad about it. No, no. Fash really is a complete like... psycho. He does not feel <laughs> right. He didn't seem like he felt bad about Because he basically was saying like, oh, this is what we had to do. Like, this was survival. So he has like, no, re- no regrets. That's right. He said no regrets. No. Yeah. He said no regrets. Well, you can't they, have regrets. They they asked him, "Do you think that you ever went too far?" And he sits there and he like, he thinks and he's like, "Well, no one died, did they?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's what he said. No one died. You know, you either you either 
grew a backbone very quickly or you, or you dissolved as a man. It really was a tough school. You have a choice. There's an exit there and you can use it if you feel that that is right for you. We're too tough, then it's okay, no problem. But if you want to move with us, if you want to be, see the success that we believe that we will see at Wimbledon. We haven't got it yet, but we believe one day we will be successful. And one day the doors of heaven will open. Fame, fortune, because that's what we all want here. That's what we all are striving for here. But if you think you can't make it, then go. Because I've got news for you. The next person after you is going to go through even worse. I appreciate like the money ball strategy and like figuring out things that are like innovative that no one else is doing, but like trying also, to score. But, but yeah, but also it was clearly like they talked about how like when other teams came to play them, they said like they just wanted to get out of there without an injury. And so like they said, like imagine the advantage that that gives you. I'm sure it does. But as much as I appreciate the money ball strategy, I, I don't like like, you know, sports that are like uh, Tanya Harding's like, boyfriend isn't Moneyball. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So that that part I, I kind of like struggled with, like kind of going back and forth between like appreciating what they were doing, but also being like disgusted. With, yeah. Like, yeah. And, and like their... so. So you stepped away for just a few seconds, Ryan. And I was like, well, I mean, in America, we love underdogs. We love underdogs, you know, that are maybe of less talent um, that mm-hmm. aren't, aren't as, as wealthy. Uh, this is a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different yeah. thing. Yeah. No. And, and, and it is like, like I mentioned, like there are definitely things to like the, the journey, the Cinderella mm-hmm. thing, the underdog yeah. thing, but then there's the other side. It's much more problematic and that people tend to forget about just because it's such a cool thing to talk about. But, but Chris, you, you have, so not just the players, but you have, uh, you really enjoyed the story about the coach when he wanted to sign a player when he arrived at the club. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so the documentary talked about for, for, first of all, the coach, when they signed the, the new coach, coach Bobby gold, was that his name? Yep. Mm-hmm. I just wrote down coach Unibrow. <laughs> <laughs> who also like when he talked he had like like all this build up in his lips like it was like wipe your lips off like he had like this crud on his lips anyway um uh his past before he's he wasn't at- called coach chapstick <laughs> no, he's not um uh be- before he's hired as coach he was the headmaster of this is quoting him the worst school in England. So it's like, well, if you can handle kids who are bad in school, I guess you can coach a, a soccer team. And he was the guy who's like, hey, innovation, let's let's try to score goals, but also elbow them in the teeth. Yeah. Um, and uh, but even the guy who's like, let's play dirty and, you know, flood their locker room with sewage. And um, so, like, uh, I mean, soccer in England is a very uh, interesting and different sport. Uh, so, so like a big part is like you enter the stadium through the same tunnel, and a big thing is like they would like in the tunnel like elbow them and like <laughs> like like 
cl- like cleat their knees. Like they would injure yeah, them in the tunnel. They would fight guys in the tunnel before the game. Right, so. <laughs> and um, so he's like, yeah, besides the strategy, uh, we need talent. So he went to the owner and was like, we could use some better players. And the owner was a cheap bastard who also had interesting eyebrows. And by the end of the of this movie, like they were like caterpillars, like they were like like they were like three inches long. Like, they were moving. Anyway, they they had this agreement where where the um, he could not convince the owner to get free agents. So he's like, I'll tell you. The owner's like, tell you what, was it twelve? He said it, yeah. he, he like ordered twelve sheep testicles at like a pub or something. And I was like, "Hey, coach, if you eat these twelve balls, these <laughs> testicles from sheep, cooked, of course, if you eat these, I'll sign the free agent you want." Was that was that John Scales? I don't remember who it okay. was. Uh, it was. And they weren't free agents. They were like actual players. They had to pay money for them. Sorry, not free agents. Yeah. So in, in England... We don't know what they're called. You, in you, you, purchase, you, you purchase players that are under contract. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, he would write into contracts. So, I mean, carrot and stick. So the carrot is purchasing these not, non-free agents, these players. Um, the stick the, is eating balls. No, no, no. The stick is um, the in the contract... That's the carrot. In the contract, if if you lost four nil, you had to go to an opera. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, because what is the one thing that these guys hate the most? Well, it's going to the opera. <laughs> uh, any last things on the crazy gang? Did you enjoy the documentary? Very much. I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, and and so I, I guess I should say that so the documentary very much tells Vinnie Jones and John Fashionov's story, and mm-hmm. so how much of it is actually true is a little bit dubious. But but some of it definitely is. Like they yeah. definitely torched a car to get the insurance money. They, oh they yeah, did tie someone to the roof of car. And and over. I totally I totally believe that John Fashionov. <laughs> Um, like during stretching would like do uh, kung fu instead of stretching and during like, you know, conditioning would like pretend to be building a business and then his phone would ring. Like he's, they were like, he'd be on the phone pretending to talk to like a stockbroker. And then like, as he's talking on his phone, his phone would ring indicating that he's not actually this mogul because he's crazy. He's insane. We had video evidence of, of uh, Vinnie Jones um, once they won. Like his celebration, like he like pretended, or he actually did knee the owner in the nuts. And I've seen, and like that's not even the worst thing he's done. I've seen like multiple <laughs> documentaries where Vinnie Jones yeah. is like a hitman. Um, so he, he, yeah, like like Snatch. Like he's not a or good guy. Lock, lock st- stock and smoke. Yeah, I thought you meant that he was a hitman on the pitch, which isn't too far from the truth either. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It, it, also, there was this mysterious player they mentioned at the end. Uh, no one knows where he lives. He refused to be interviewed. Uh, Eric Young, was that his name? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That is uh, all the time we're giving to this episode. Uh, we will be putting up an after show on the Patreon for those of you who have been generous to subscribe. To everyone else, we wish you a good night and good luck. Don't tie people to the roof of cars. <laughs> Again. <laughs>